Also known as the music that plays in Monty Python on the quest for the Holy Grail when they find the Grail Castle at the end of the movie. I teased on Twitter this week that I had procured the rights to the one song above all others, which I would choose as my theme music, and this was the answer. Epic and grandiose as originally composed, and yet made ridiculous and tongue-in-cheek by the Monty Python context. Sounds about right, it seemed to me. So hey there, friends, beloved patrons, and fellow mythical astronomers of the Starry Host. It's your Starry Host, LML. I'm here with more than just new theme music. I've got a fresh new series for you. That's right. Blow your horns of winter, strum your silver harps, and let the crossbows wang. Well, maybe hold the crossbows. I didn't realize you all had crossbows. I thought you were musicians. Who hired these guys? Anyway, yes, it's true. Quite unexpectedly, it seems that we are starting a brand new series today. It just sort of happened. I was writing what I thought was going to be Moons of Ice and Fire 6, and as I blew past the two-hour podcast threshold, which is about 20,000 words, with no signs of slowing down, I knew that I had to split the episode up. After thinking about it, I realized I was really writing about a contained subject centered around the origins of House Stark and the Stark's connection to the Others and that it would actually work quite nicely as its own short series. Something like this happened when I stumbled upon the Weirwood Goddess idea while writing Weirwood Compendium 5. I thought it was just going to be one episode of the Weirwood Compendium, but I realized it was actually a cool topic on its own, with more than one episode's worth of material. So I made a new series, and I think it's worked out really well. The Sacred Order of Green Zombies series was also an outgrowth of writing an episode for the Weirwood Compendium, actually. Weirwoods are just such a huge topic and lead to so many other things that they just give birth to new series right and left. This new series is called Blood of the Other, and it is indeed about the connection between House Stark and the Others. In part one, we'll establish that connection, and in doing so, we'll discover a cool new Song of Ice and Fire archetype that we haven't discovered before. One disclaimer... Acquiring an understanding of R plus L equals J as a symbolic alchemical wedding of ice and fire, as we did last time, is essential to understanding this connection between the Starks and the Others. So if you haven't listened to the Moons of Ice and Fire series 1 through 5, then press pause on this one and listen to those first. It's just going to be a lot more enjoyable that way. Believe me. In the last episode, R plus L equals J, a recipe for making ice dragons, we saw that both John and the others are children of icy moon queens and dark solar kings. Rhaegar and Night's King are both dark solar kings, and Lyanna and Night's Queen are both icy lunar queens. This creates a strange parallel between John and the others, which certainly demands explanation. The coming confrontation between John and the others is going to be a major part of the climax of the story, after all, so it's something we want to understand. 
I think most of us expect it's going to be a little more complicated than just a sword fight, and whatever links the Starks might have with the others are bound to be the thing which defines their engagement. As we've seen, it's not just Jon Snow who seems to parallel the others and yet oppose them. We could say that these Starks in general, those ice-eyed, snow-bearded kings of winter who wield a sword called ice, also seem to symbolically parallel the others in many ways. And yet both Jon and the Starks are famously dedicated to fighting the others. Fight ice with ice, right? At the end of the RLJ episode, I left you with the question of why, if John and the others are both symbolic ice moon children, do they come out so different? Why does John have black ice armor, an inversion of the crystalline mirror-like ice armor of the others? Why is John symbolized by dragonglass, which is frozen fire, while the others seem to personify the concept of burning ice, with those burning blue star eyes that they have? Well, in the Blood of the Other series, we are going to answer every version of that question. And in doing so, we will manage to pull all this celestial dragon-locked-in-ice claptrap firmly down into the conflicted hearts of flesh-and-blood people, though I can't swear their hearts aren't cold. Another thing I did in the last episode or two was piss off hundreds or thousands of people even who love House Stark by claiming that Night's King was Azor High or a Blood of the Dragon person. Old Nan told us Night's King was a Stark. How f- dare I claim otherwise, right? Am I calling Old Nan a liar? Well, of course not. I wouldn't call Old Nan a liar. She's as real as the news gets in Westeros, outside of a direct link to the Weirwood Net. There is an eminently plausible way all this meets up, or rather, a range of possibilities which could explain how all this can work. These possibilities have echoes in the current plot of the story, as we know the right answers to history's mysteries always should. We'll discuss those possibilities in the series. That the Starks are tied to the others, few have any doubt. The question is how. How are they tied to the others? How did it happen, and what does it mean? Those are the questions we want to answer. And we'll do so in Blood of the Other Part 1, A Baleful Bard, A Promised Prince. But first... Here in this prelude to a chill, I want to address some of the accepted history that we are contradicting. In particular, I want to try to dispel some of the certainty which has formed around a certain interpretation of the Knights King legend. Namely, that because he was the 13th Lord Commander, that he must have lived some time after the Long Night, as opposed to during the Long Night, as the symbolism repeatedly, repeatedly suggests. This little prelude here will take a decidedly logical and analytical focus, which some of you will enjoy more than others. You guys know this is a primarily symbolism-based podcast, but we do have to discuss the logistics of what the symbolism suggests every now and again, just so that we can make sure what we're proposing makes sense and isn't pure tinfoil. I do actually love to talk about the timeline, so let's get to it. Right after we give credit where credit is due. As I mentioned, the title music is by Stanley Black, and the flamenco guitar stylings of Mr. John Walsh are still with us. I can't play the grill theme in between every section after all, or else it would lose its punch. So thanks to John for his music, and thanks to Mr. Martin Lewis, who once again lends us his vocal acting talents to perform the readings from the books, with an assist from the lovely and talented Amethyst Koala for the female voices. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for writing the novels and enduring endless trolling while doing so. Seriously, you guys, stop it. Not that any of you guys are doing that, but if you see somebody doing that, tell them to stop it. And, of course, thanks most of all to those of you who have signed up to support mythical astronomy through Patreon. 
I've had a bunch of new patrons in recent months, and accordingly, I have a bunch of new starry nicknames to pronounce with all due fanfare. This prelude episode is going to be a short one with only one section, and that section is going to be sponsored by our very first dragon patron. That's right, one mythical astronomer out there has bravely volunteered to be sacrificed and transformed into a dragon. The exact process must remain a mystery, you understand, but it's safe to say that obscene rites and eldritch incantations were performed, the bloodlust of dark gods was sated, and where once stood a man like any other, now we have a dragon patron. Additionally, I'll be reading the names of the entire starry host up through the Sacred Order of the Black Hand at the end of this episode, since this is going to be a short one. So if you've never heard your name read before, today might be your lucky day. So stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. Then we'll have some more new patrons in Part 1, A Baleful Bard and a Promised Prince, which will follow hot on the heels of this prelude episode. Thanks, everyone. I couldn't do it without your support. thousand years ago, give or take a few decades. This prelude episode is brought to you by our first dragon patron, Bronze Stares of the Lily White Scales and Bronze Wingbones, Horns, and Spinal Crest, a wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. It is said that Bronze Stares once forged a life-size Valerian steel Cyvas set in a single night. Now, when I say that the symbolism repeatedly suggests that knights, king, and queen ruled during the long night, I'm referring to examples such as the first two knights, queen figures that we studied, Visenya Targaryen and Lyanna Stark, and the long night-like circumstances under which they did things to symbolize the creation of the others. It was during the black time remembered as the years of the dragon's wrath that followed the death of Firemoon Queen Rhaenys Targaryen that her sister, Queen Visenya, created the Kingsguard, those white shadow knights with snowy armor and snow-white cloaks. Rhaegar and Lyanna, some two and a half centuries later, absconded to conceive Jon Snow during a vicious cold snap, where King's Landing was snowed in, the Blackwater Rush was frozen over, and the notorious cold winds were howling. The King's Guard at Jon's birth supply the other symbolism to that scene, of course. We also had Jon's two parallel black ice, red fire scenes at the Wall, Scenes where his conception was symbolized in parallel with John either talking about manning the wall against the others or dreaming about doing so. There seems to be extensive symbolism linking John's birth to the onset of winter and the invasion of the others, to sort of sum it up in brief. And so on and so forth, and everything else we've mentioned so far in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. You guys know what I think about a symbolic message that's presented that clearly and that often. It's not lying to us. Symbolism is subjective to a large extent, of course, so we must always use caution and judgment when interpreting, but we can be confident in the basic message when it's coming at us from so many angles. If you generally understand and agree with the way that I and other fellow analysts view Martin's use of symbolism and symbolic language, I think there can be little doubt that some part of the origin of the others lies with the cold womb of the Night's Queen. Similarly, we've seen enough ice queens in action to know that they always marry and conceive in the cold of winter, surrounded by the symbolism of the others and the long night, and thus we can have little doubt that knight's queen and king create the others during the long night. Now, if we're correct about that, then there should be logical ways to explain the apparent conflict with the quote-unquote official history, and we should be able to find clues left by the author 
about which parts of the official history that we should cast an especially suspicious eye at. By way of comparison, we were told that Azor High was a great hero, but we noticed he was stabbing his wife and breaking the moon, and so we began to question it. When the symbolism seemed to point unmistakably towards Azor High as some sort of dark lord who brought on the Long Night, well, we found the sort of agreement that we're looking for. Clues to question a theory in conjunction with symbolism that points towards a sensible alternative. Another great example of this is the Hammer of the Waters. We're told that the Hammer of the Waters fell thousands of years before the Long Night, and that the Green Seers of the Children of the Forest worked powerful blood magic to cause it. But the Maesters flat out admit that it really doesn't make much sense for the children to break the Arm of Dorne after thousands of first men had already been crossing for centuries. Even if we accept that the old gods broke the arm of dawn with the hammer of the waters, as the legends claim, the green seers sang their song too late. No more wanderers crossed to Westeros after the breaking. It is true, for the first men were no seafarers. But so many of their forebears had already made the crossing that they outnumbered the dwindling elder races, almost three to one by the time the lands were severed. And that disparity only grew in the centuries that followed. For the women of the first men brought forth sons and daughters with much greater frequency than the females of the elder races. This is what we call out in the country, closing the barn doors after the horses have escaped. And what it means is, well, just what it sounds like. After the horses get out, there's not really much point in closing the barn doors. Same situation here. There's really not much point in breaking the land bridge that uh, the first men have used to invade your continent after they've already invaded your continent. It's not really the land bridge's fault now, is it? In any case, Jojen even says that the old songs say the green seers used dark magic to make the seas rise and sweep away the land, shattering the arm, but it was too late to close the door. So, it's exactly like closing the barn door after the horses have escaped. He's practically using the same idiom. In any case, it was pointless. And when we're being openly invited to question the history like this, we should. I'd also argue that if the children possessed the kind of magic that can cause localized earthquakes to happen at specific places, why wouldn't they have just dropped smaller hammers on the ring forts of the first men when they were all conveniently gathered in one spot? Wouldn't simply demonstrating that power like once or twice be sufficient to cow mankind? I guess the question I'm asking is, who would want to build castles in a land where the elves can cause earthquakes? I certainly wouldn't. I also question the idea that the children, who are caretakers of the earth and the wood, as all elves are, would destroy so much of the earth to win a war for self-preservation. That's, that really sounds more like the rationale of a human being retroactively applied to the children of the forest, if you ask me. All things considered, the story about the children of the forest dropping the hammer of the waters has plenty of holes in it, and it even has maesters pointing at some of those holes. So when the symbolism around the hammer of the waters and the places where it dropped, like Sunspear and Bloodstone, all point flashing red arrow signs towards a moon meteor impact as the explanation, we again find what we're looking for, clues to question the accepted history and symbolism which points us towards a sensible alternative. So with this in mind, let's consider what we know about Night's King, the Night's Watch, the Long Night, and the War for the Dawn, beginning with the idea of Night's King being the 13th man to lead the Watch. 
As we go, we'll look for clues that we should be questioning what we are told. Now, most people assume that the watch was formed during the long night, and in fact, the world of ice and fire clarifies this, saying that alone he finally reached the children, despite the efforts of the White Walkers, and all the tales agree that this was a turning point. Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the battle for the dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. This is only the recounting of folklore by skeptical maesters and not fact, but it is nevertheless true that most people seem to think that the watch originates with the battle against the others during the long night. But the maesters also say that the Age of Heroes is regarded as having ended with the long night, hence the name The Last Hero for the man who helped end the long night. So why does Sam, reading from the oldest histories at Castle Black, tell us about the Night's Watch existing during the Age of Heroes? Long ago, John broke in. What about the others? I found mention of Dragonglass. The children of the forest used to give it the Night's Watch, a hundred obsidian daggers every year, during the Age of Heroes. Either the Age of Heroes was after the Long Night, which I absolutely think is possible, maybe even probable, or the Night's Watch existed before the Long Night. Or maybe the records are simply mistaken. And here's the thing. George wants this stuff to be foggy. The others, Sam licked his lips. They are mentioned in the annals, though not as often as I would have thought. The annals I've found and looked at, that is. There's more I haven't found, I know. Some of the older books are falling to pieces. The pages crumble when I try and turn them. And the really old books, if they have crumbled all away, or they are buried somewhere that I haven't looked yet, or, well, it could be that there are no such books and never were. The oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros. The first men only left us runes on rocks. So everything we know about the Age of Heroes and the Dawn Age and the Long Night comes from the accounts set down by Septons thousands of years later. There are archmaesters at the Citadel who question all of it. Those old histories are full of kings who reigned for hundreds of years and knights riding round a thousand years before there were knights. You know the tales, Brandon the Builder, Simeon Star Eyes, Knight's King. We say that you're 998th Lord Commander of the Knight's Watch, but the oldest list I've found shows 674 commanders, which suggests it was written during... Long ago, John broke in. What about the others? And then Sam goes on to tell John about the Knight's Watch receiving dragon glass from the children of the forest during the Age of Heroes. As you can see, what George has done is to recreate the fog of history and legend, as well as the political bias of the conquerors, which often shapes the history that we're given. And he's done a bang-up job of it. That's what makes this fun. In any case, I think I've made my point. When it comes to the sequence of events that happened six to 8,000 years ago, give or take a few centuries, the accepted history could be off by centuries and even eons, and much of it may be stylized or even metaphorical. With all that said, let's go ahead and, for now, work with the premise that the Night's Watch was indeed established in something like the form that we know during the Long Night. I do think this makes the most sense, after all. In terms of Night's King being the 13th Lord Commander, the thinking goes like this. 
if the first man to lead the watch lived during the long night, then 13 Lord Commanders later would be like, I don't know, 100 or 200 years after the War for the Dawn, and thus Knight's King must have lived a couple of centuries after the Long Night. That's the commonly held timeline, at least in the fandom, if not in the minds of the people in the universe who care to consider such matters. The first potential issue with this is that we do not know how long the Long Night went on, and because it seemed to have involved a deadly war against the others, it's well possible that twelve Lord Commanders, or twelve leaders of the Watch, died during the course of the war. Here's the key Old Nan quote about this. The others... Old Nan agreed. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation, and kings shivered and died in their castles, even as the swineherds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve and cried, and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. Her voice and her needles fell silent, and she glanced up at Bran with pale, filmy eyes and asked, So, child, this is the sort of story you like? Well, Bran said reluctantly, yes, only old Nan nodded. In that darkness, the others came for the first time, she said as her needles went click, click, click. They were cold things, dead things that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the sorts of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. What Old Nan is describing here is more than a battle. It's a war of conquest that swept over kingdoms, plural, and armies, plural. The Long Night was said to last a generation, which is a flexible length of time, but I have to think that it lasted at least six to twelve years at a minimum, and the humans seem to have been at war with the others for at least part of that time. Honestly, you could go through several commanders in a single pitched battle against the others, and it's easy to see how 12 commanders could perish over the course of several battles, let alone several years of battle. Although the first men of the Night's Watch were said to band together to win the War for the Dawn and end the Long Night, we can't interpret that so rigidly as to rule out the idea that the previous commanders of the armies of men might be regarded as the first 12 men to lead the Watch. What if the first Night's Watch grew out of an elite fighting force that already existed before the Long Night in a different form, like, oh, I don't know, the Sacred Order of the Green Men. Or perhaps it was the Gemstone Emperor Royal House Guard. Be it one of those or something else entirely, it's easy to see that there could have been an earlier incarnation of the Watch during the Long Night before they were sworn to man the wall for all eternity at the end of the Long Night. Maybe that's where the plural form of walls in the I am the watcher on the walls, part of the oath comes from. The days when the watch was stationed somewhere else with multiple walls, be that the night fort, or Winterfell, or Moat Kalen, or maybe even the far-off five forts in Essos. That plural walls line that doesn't quite fit is the sort of thing we're looking for. 
Logic dictates that George worded it that way intentionally to create the sense that there's an unsolved mystery there. And the obvious question is, what walls? Why wouldn't the oath say the more obvious, I am the watcher on the wall? There is only one 700-foot wall of ice, after all. Besides unexplained mysteries like this, we are also looking for clues about parts of the legends which may not be literal truth, but rather an embellishment of the bard's truth, or perhaps more of a symbolic truth, or simply a distortion of time. One thing that sticks out like a sore thumb to me is all the thirteens. Was Night's King really the thirteenth Lord Commander? And he ruled for thirteen years? And the last hero led a group of thirteen? This seems like the kind of thing which is likely to be symbolic and not literal. It seems more likely that thirteen is a number significant to old northern folklore, and over the centuries, everything about these two related legends simply became thirteen. The numbers of things in legends and myths of the real world are very frequently used to express symbolism, and this trio of thirteens seems like that kind of thing to me as well. Here's another thing that sticks out as stylized Bard's Truth language. Old Nan says, Night's king was only a man by light of day, but the night was his to rule. And we could take it literally and suppose that Night's king is like a werewolf, with special powers active only at night. But I think it makes a lot more sense to think about a person who transformed once when the long night fell, with the long night being his to rule, as it was for the so-called Bloodstone Emperor of Eastern legend. Thirteen years actually isn't a bad guess for the length of the long night for what it's worth, so you could sort of see how some of this might fit together. Night's King was only a man before the long night, but became something more than a man when it fell, seizing power for the next thirteen years until he was defeated at the War for the Dawn. I really think something along these lines makes more sense than the werewolf thing. I mean, you'd just attack him during the day, right? Problem solved. Another thing that makes people think Night's King lived after the Long Night is the part of Night's King's legend where it says that he spied the lovely corpse queen from atop the wall, indicating that the wall was already built when Night's King did his thing. Since most people think the wall was built after the Long Night, the accepted chronology again seems to place the reign of Night's King after the Long Night. However, this is far from ironclad. We still don't even have a strong bead on who built the wall, how it was built, or even why it was built, let alone when. There is logic to the classic explanation of keeping out the armies of the dead and the others, but there's many problems too. I mean, the obvious answer to the question of who would have been able to build a magical 700-foot-high wall of ice is, of course, the others, whom our author says can do things with ice that we can't imagine and make substances of it. But the others are supposedly the very ones the wall was built to stop. So if it wasn't built by the others, but to stop the others, why build it out of ice, which the others have superior control over? Consider also that Bran the Builder was said to have been associated with the building of the wall. But Bran was also said to have lived in the Age of Heroes, which supposedly took place before the Long Night. And Bran was also associated with other seemingly pre-Long Night structures like Storm's End and the final version of the High Tower of Old Town and with their affiliated Age of Heroes monarchs, Durn God's Grief and Uthor Hightower. In other words, the official timeline appears to contradict itself, where it concerns the building of the wall and when Bran the Builder lived. Once again, the maesters actually point to this problem and suggest multiple Brandons building multiple buildings as being the likely answer. This is more fog of history stuff, and it's pretty fun to debate in its own right. 
How many Brandons does it take to build an ice wall? Nobody but the Greenseers and the children know the truth. Now, we in the fandom have developed good theories and solutions for a lot of the mysteries in the series, but the question of who built the wall and when, and for what purpose, is still fairly opaque. (laughs) And until the writing of this essay, I didn't really have any sort of clue about it either. That's right, I've found a couple of clues, which I'll show you in due course. Additionally, we don't know if Bran the Builder lived before or after the Long Night, or maybe even both if he survived through it, or if Bran the Builder is simply a line of people who were advanced masons and architects way back in the day, as is suggested by the maesters in the World of Ice and Fire. Therefore, it's difficult to use the building of the wall as a way to date when Night's King lived, and as you can see... In the process of looking at this, we've also stumbled upon several more unresolved issues with the official timeline and the accepted history. Here's another thing to consider. It's quite possible that the wall would not have been the first thing built in that area. Before wanting to build a giant wall to defend the land, you'd have to be established there already. You'd be trying to mark a boundary, effectively, and you'd do that on the edge of your claimed territory. Usually kingdoms have fortresses, or forts, you might say, like the night fort, on their borders. And if humans were involved in building the wall on some level, then you'd want to build an outpost or a fortress first to use as a base of operations. We are told that the night fort is the largest and oldest castle on the wall, so it's the likely candidate to be this first fortress. It probably wasn't as big at first, like all castles, but the fact that it's the oldest means it could have actually been built before the wall. And that's something I don't hear anyone else pointing out. The mainstream media just won't cover it. Anyway, here's another big clue about the possibility that the Night Fort predates the wall. The Black Gate. The Night Fort, in my opinion, seems likely to have been built around the magical weirwood organism that lives there. The Black Gate, a.k.a. the freaky-deaky blind talking weirwood face down in the well. I think it probably happened similarly to how it did at Winterfell, where the castle was built around the underground crypts and the godswood. They were old, those eyes, older than Winterfell itself. They had seen Brandon the Builder set the first stone if the tales were true. They had watched the castle's granite walls rise around them. Above the well at the night fort, we see a new-growth weirwood pushing up through the masonry of the floor, and it seems a good guess that the Blackgate weirwood face is connected to that sapling, and that there are, therefore, a ton of weirwood roots under the night fort. The Blackgate itself must open up to either some sort of cavern system or some sort of weird portal. It's just not specified where Bran and company go after they go through the weirwood mouth, which again is really weird. In other words, the night fort is not just an old castle where a bunch of creepy things happened. It's an ancient place with a powerful and remarkably unique magic. I mean, it's the only talking weirwood face that we've ever seen, and that's pretty unique. It's a place we don't know the full story of yet, and it's just the sort of place with a story that might begin before the Long Night and the Wall. It may well have been a great castle of the first men from before the Long Night, one that was perhaps taken by the evil Azor High turned Night's King as his stronghold during the Long Night with the wall only being built around it afterward. The legend would have gradually changed to suppose Night's King must have seen his corpse queen from atop the ice wall, and presto, that's how we get the myth we have now. Perhaps. Here's another self-contradiction in the accepted timeline, and one of my favorites. If Night's King lived one or two centuries after the Long Night, 
Why were there others around to sacrifice to? Why, so soon after they had had their ass kicked by the last hero in the Night's Watch, would there be others lurking around the Night Fort? In the present day of the story, we are led to believe that the others have not been seen in centuries before they began stirring sometime in the last two decades, so it's weird to think of them already stirring and walking the woods so soon after the big defeat at the Battle for the Dawn and the ending of the Long Night. It's not impossible. There could be something we don't understand or know yet, but it doesn't really make sense from where we are right now. Some have suggested Night's King was, quote, sacrificing to the others as part of keeping a pact with the others, with that pact being the thing holding them back from invading. That doesn't really work, though, because if it was Night's King's sacrifice of his children that was holding the others back, then the others should have invaded after Night's King was thrown down and these sacrifices stopped, which would have broken the pact. But this didn't happen. That one's pretty hard to get around. If giving the others babies mollifies and pacifies them, then they should have invaded after Night's King was thrown down. In current times, we have Craster giving many children to the others, but they are stirring and preparing to invade anyway. Giving them babies just makes more others, I think. Heck, it seems more likely that Craster giving up his sons to be made into others or to be used to create others or whoever that works might have actually helped the White Walkers begin to stir, as opposed to holding them off, since Mance indicates that they have started to stir. You know, they've been stirring for the last several years. That's what I'm claiming about Knights King and Queen, too, that they were making others to enable the Great White Walker invasion. At this point in our mythical astronomy journey through the symbolism of the others, you can see why I started off the Moons of Ice and Fire series with the topic of Knights Queen and King making white shadows during the long night. It's the first thing we need to understand about the others that runs contrary to the accepted history, and it's the thing that all this symbolism points to. On top of the symbolism, George gave us Craster, the human White Walker factory, to show us that sacrificing to the others, in fact, means playing a part in the process of White Walker creation by giving your sons to the wood. We've been studying Martin's writing long enough to understand that he likes to create these parallels between the in-world legends and the main action of the book, and the parallel between Gilly and Craster, Knight's King and Queen, is one of the best, precisely because it clues us in to part of the recipe for making another. Then, when we read of the legend of Knight's King for the second or third time, we recognize the phrase sacrificing to the others, and we realize, oh, Knight's King and Queen, they weren't just worshipping the others, they were creating them. So if Craster and Gilly are these important parallel figures to Knight's King and Queen, at least in regards to sacrificing to the others, what about the one that got away? What about Gilly's child, the baby nicknamed Monster, who was meant to be given to the White Walkers, but wasn't? What kind of historical parallel does that suggest? The answer, tune in to Blood of the Other, Part 1. A Baelish Bard and a Promised Prince. Now, as promised, here is a reading of all of my patrons up through the Sacred Order of the Black Hand level. 
If you don't hear your name, that means either you haven't sent me information or you did and I somehow missed it, which is possible. So, kindly send me some info and we'll get you on the list of the starry host. Now, if we could just cue up some mood music. Ah, yes, it's the 10-minute Space Odyssey track I recorded that one time late at night with only my bass guitar and 20 effects pedals. That should do the trick. The Starry Host. Anolian, the silver shadow of justice. Luna of the Mayari, blade of the goddess. Lady Laura of House Tyrell, rose of Highgarden. Sir Morris Mayberry the Upright, climber of Jacob's Ladder, whose words are, I drink and tweet things. Amelia Sophia, master of the Glass Hound. Sergeant Pimenta, he who can handle the trufa. Joel Doomwalker, called Moonaxe. Lord Starfoot, the last shepherd of Valyria, capturer of the horn. Firewren, pie master of Pie Island. Lord Griffith of House Femto, the Nighthawk, whose house words are, in the brightest light, the deepest shadow. Andrew of the Wolfswood, emissary of the North. Sir Roger of the Nightcook. Red Ramir Ravenhorn of Skagos. Tazarus Glider, Phoenix Mother, Emerald of the Desert Oasis. Dragonweaver, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Scythe, Tiger's Bane. Maya Online, she who makes the magic that never sleeps. Christine of House Dane, helmswoman of the Cinnamon Wind. The Sea Snake, Silver Shades, True Blue, The Lion of Sunstone, Radio Westeros, Ephemerata, Pegleg Pete, Helen, Queen of Sunshine. Keeper of the Pearl Palanquin, Enkidu, Baron Breakspear, the Jack in the Green of Fangorn Forest, Yensid, Johan, a Baratheon bastard from the future, Deathfadder, wielder of the Valyrian steel sword and Frostmourne, Grig the Gecko, the Hungry Storm. Acolytes of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Mira of House Gardener, Keeper of the Glass Gardens and Bearer of the Sea Dragon's Torch. Shiera Luin Ellen, the Blue Star of Heaven and Resident Linguist of the Podcast. Bjorn Berserker of the Bear Shirt, Bishop of the Kumaraja. Molly Anissa, keeper of the Moon Singer's Law. As do Delaberry, called Island's Bane and the Silent Blade. Messias the Dreamer, spotter of comets, master of hindsight, loyal bannerman to whomever wins the Game of Thrones. Silas the Redbeard, chief of the Redsmiths. 
Sir Therian Black, the Justiciar, bearer of the Valyrian steel sword Altar Rage. Arand Nim, spearwife of the Red Mountains and secret witness to the Tower of Joy. Greenfoot, the Gorgeous. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, sworn alesmith to House Stark. Grand Maester of the Zithomancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Stephanie Stormstrummer, Minstrel of the Mountains. Messiah of the Oily Hand, Boatman of the Shivering Sea. Craveris, the Winged Ram of the Purple Skies. Matinus, Alaskan God of Thunder and Sex, the Cookie Burner. Ben Brown Plum, Archmaester of the Haunted Forest. Laura of House Hildigger, Weaver of Ancient Knowledge. Vengeris Targaryen, Witch Mother of the Kingswood. Virginie the Selicarian, Master of Homing Away. The Dread Pirate Baron, the Demon Deacon, whose direwolf is called Megantic. Rupee the Funketeer, Archmaester of Synesthesia. Icarus Drowning, the Public Eye. Edward Greenhand, the Transplanting Transplant with a History of History. Marcella, the Vampiress of the Rainhouse, the Lady of Charlotte. The Priesthood of the Church of Starry Wisdom. Archmaester Emma, founder of the Maiden Maesters and Keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. The Venus of Ostkik, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones. Black-Eyed Lily, the Dark Phoenix. Lady Danelle Bulwar, the Soaring Bat of Blackjack Mountain. The Black Maester Azizel, Lord of the Feasible and Keeper of the Records, whose rod and masked ring smell of coffee. Enavi, Shadowbinder from the Eastern Mountains and Lakes. Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, Lord Commander of the History of Westeros Night's Watch, whose words are avenging the memory of brave Danny. Sir Cosmo of House Astor, whose words are we walk at dawn. The Orange Man. Patchface of Motley Wisdom. Monami of the Jade Sea, the Merry Deviant, Keeper of Winter Roses. Hey Big Lady, Royal Seamstress of House Aaron. Grin of Long Lake, the Smiling Ranger and Freezer of the White Knife. Obscured by Clouds, the Mayor of Walrusville, Guest of the Yupik and Servant of Bodhi. Nyessa, the Water Nymph, Goddess of Pain and Mercy. Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves, Bear Mama of the Sacred Den. Lady Shar, Wielder of the Sacred Shard, Ice Priestess of the House of the Unsleeping. Kathleen the Ruthless, Captain of the Ironborn Ship Night Terror. Tom Cruise sitting on a couch drinking a Diet Coke next to a little picture of Winston Churchill. Crowfood's daughter of the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. Stella de Silvestri, also called Yellow Stella, Mistress of Arcana. John of House Elric of Rezembul, the Winter Sun. Luis of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne. Rilorger, Mistress of the Pointy End.
Sacred Order of the Black Hand. Sir Dale, the Winged Fist, the last scion of House Mud and captain of the dread ship Black Squirrel. Sir Stoyles of Long Branch, seeker of pale blood. Viseria Sunbreaker. Mallory Sand, Stormwitch, rider of Zulfiric, the Black Beast. Matthias Wormont, seagoat of the bottomless depths. Count Magpie the Wound, the Dinky Giant, Hornblower of the Oslofjord. And the Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence. We'd like to thank all of our patrons. And stay tuned for more new patron nicknames next episode, including new members of the Long Night's Watch. And I'm sorry for making you listen to this. It's been very strange, I know. People have been asking to hear some of my bass playing, and so naturally I thought I'd share the weirdest thing I've ever done. See you next time.